Welcome to a podcast of the Knox County Public Library in Knoxville, Tennessee. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Books Sandwiched In. This is a program that is sponsored by Friends of the Knox County Public Library and the Knox County Public Library. And I'm Rusha Sams, the outgoing president of Friends. Today, we welcome Dave Wells, a Tennessee State Coordinator for Better Angels. It's a national civic movement to reduce political polarization in the United States by bringing liberals and conservatives together to understand each other beyond stereotypes by teaching practical skills for communicating across political differences. Wells is also a business development specialist for a network of independent insurance agencies and a graduate of the University of Tennessee with a double major in history and political science. Welcome, Dave Wells. Thank you for that kind introduction. I would like to begin my remarks this afternoon with a picture. It is a picture found here in the East Tennessee History Center in the Civil War exhibit. It is also found on their websites. It is a sketch drawn from memory by a Confederate prisoner of war depicting a scene in downtown Knoxville in May of 1861. As many of you know, in the early days of the Civil War, Tennesseans had divided loyalties. East Tennessee generally supported the Union, while Middle and West Tennessee were firmly in the Confederacy. Knoxville, however, was a deeply divided city. In the foreground of this picture, we see a crowd of loyal Unionists gathered around an American flag. This flag was erected at the corner of Main and Gay Street, just a few blocks from where we sit now. However, if you look closely in the background of the sketch, toward the top you will see a large Confederate flag and a regiment of Confederate soldiers marching up Gay Street toward the Unionists. On that fine spring day in May of 1861, here on this street, shouts were heard, shots were fired, blood was shed, and a man was killed, perhaps the first casualty from East Tennessee in the bloody American Civil War. Some two months before this tragic scene, on March 4th, Abraham Lincoln stood on the steps of the Capitol building in Washington, D.C., and took the oath of office as our 16th president. He concluded his inaugural address with a stirring appeal for peace in the words that are quoted in the front piece of our book. I am loath to close, Lincoln said. We are not enemies, but friends. We must not be enemies. Though passion may have strained, it must not break our bonds of affection. The mystic cords of memory, stretching from every battlefield and patriot grave to every living heart and hearthstone across this broad land, will yet swell the chorus of the Union when touched again as surely they will be by the better angels of our nature. Unfortunately, his ardent plea fell upon deaf ears and hardened hearts throughout the South. A few days after his inaugural, the Southern socialite Mary Chestnut of Charleston confided in her diary, we are divorced 
north from south, because we have hated each other so. Some six weeks later, that hatred would erupt in violence and war at Fort Sumter and spread throughout the country to places such as Bull Run, Shiloh, Antietam, Gettysburg, and even Knoxville. In our day, a rising tide of hatred is again swelling across our country. In private conversations with friends, I hear it. On social media and on the internet, I read it. And in my troubled heart, I feel it. Conservatives hate liberals. Blues hate reds. Coastal elites hate flyover deplorables and vice versa. And back and forth it goes. It is in response to this widening divide that Arthur C. Brooks has written Love Your Enemies, How Decent People Can Save America from the Culture of Contempt. Mr. Brooks is the current president of the American Enterprise Institute. He's the author of nearly a dozen books and a columnist for the Washington Post. This coming fall, he will join the faculty at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government and Harvard Business School. In his introduction, Mr. Brooks poses the question, are you sick of fighting yet? He notes that the political differences are ripping our country apart, and political scientists find that our nation is more polarized than it has ever been at any time since the Civil War. In many ways, the election of President Donald Trump has accelerated this polarization. As noted by the author, a Reuters-Ipsos poll in January 2017 found that one in six Americans had stopped talking to a family member or close friend because of the 2016 election. More and more, we are living in a culture of contempt. But all is not lost. There are signs of hope. He recalls in the introduction the encounter between Hawk Newsom, a Black Lives Matter activist, and Tommy Hodges, the organizer of the pro-Trump mother of all rallies in Washington, D.C. in September 2017. What could have turned into an ugly confrontation instead became a transformative moment. At the invitation of the pro-Trump Hodges, Newsom and the Black Lives activist was invited onto the stage to address the crowd. Looking over a skeptical and potentially hostile audience, Newsom began. My name is Hawk Newsom. I am president of Black Lives Matter, New York. I am an American. And the beauty of America is that when you see something broken in our country, you can mobilize to fix it. To his surprise, the crowd broke out into applause. Perhaps contrary to expectations, a feeling of respect and brotherhood arose on the National Mall in response to his remarks that day. The video of that encounter has been viewed by 57 million people on the internet, and it deeply touched Brooks, who wrote an article for it in the New York Times. He realized that there was a hunger in America for a pathway away from contempt. The story of Tommy and Hawk Brooks writes is a metaphor for America. The events of that day started with contempt, but ended with warm heartedness. Two groups that could hardly be more different overcame their mutual disdain and without coming to political agreement, still found common cause in their shared humanity and their desire for liberty and happiness. Thus the purpose of his book, he tells us, is to help America to achieve something similar. In chapter one, Brooks tackles the culture of contempt. 
He notes that researchers at Northwestern University, Boston College, and the University of Melbourne, Australia, published an article in 2014 on the subject of motive attribution asymmetry. The phenomenon of assuming the worst about the motives of others while assuming the best about our own motives. The researchers found that the majority of Republicans and Democrats suffer from a level of motive attribution asymmetry comparable to that of Palestinians and Israelis. We are headed to a point, writes Brooks, where achieving bipartisan compromise on issues is as difficult as achieving Middle East peace. <coughs> Let that sink in for a moment. The issues dividing our political parties are as intractable as the bitter conflict in the Middle East. This protracted conflict leads ultimately to contempt for those who differ with us. The pandemic of contempt, he writes, makes it impossible for people of opposing views to work together. Contempt is impractical and bad for our country, dependent on people working together in politics, communities, and the economy. Unless we hope to become a one-party state, he continues, we cannot afford contempt for our fellow Americans who simply disagree with us. Now, Americans have always known political differences. Despite George Washington's advice to avoid factions, our founders were soon divided between Hamilton's Federalists and Jefferson's Democratic Republicans. But even Jefferson noted that difference in politics should never be permitted to enter into social discourse or to disturb its friendships, its charities, or justice. Yet this culture of contempt continues to grow. And Americans are largely sick of it. According to recent surveys, 93% say they are tired of how divided we have become. 60% consider our political movement the lowest point in recent US history, surpassing the Great Depression, World War II, and the War on Terror after 9-11. And more than 70% of the country believe that we will be greatly hurt if both parties don't work together. But the problem is that we are addicted to political contempt. Brooks writes, there is an outrage industrial complex in American media today, which profits handsomely from our contempt addiction. This starts by catering to just one ideological side. Leaders and media on the left and right then keep their audience hooked on contempt by telling audiences what they want to hear selling a narrative of conflict and painting gross caricatures of the other side. They make us feel justified in our own beliefs while affirming our worst assumptions about those who disagree with us, namely that they are in fact stupid, evil, and not worth giving the time of day. Now that assessment might sound harsh, but an observer of cable news can see this in action every day. The major cable news outlets, CNN, the most trusted name in news, MSNBC, the place for politics, and the ever fair and balanced Fox News, all play to a particular demographic. This has been especially noticeable when one anchor goes from one network to the other and all of a the sudden they have a completely different political outlook. This contempt addiction is also fueled by the twin opioids of social media, Facebook and Twitter. Because we tend to friend or follow those closer to our own views, we experience what Brooks refers to 
as ideological siloing, or we're in silos. Because of the nature of their algorithms, they supply us with articles and viewpoints that mirror rather than challenge our existing beliefs. As a result, studies have shown that 55% of Democrats have a very unfavorable view of Republicans, while 58% of Republicans similarly have a very unfavorable view of Democrats. So what can be done? Brooks outlines five pieces of advice. The first is empathetic listening. When others are upset about politics, listen to them respectfully. Try to understand their point of view before offering your own. Never listen only to rebut. Second, adopt the five to one rule. Offer five positive comments for every one criticism. Remember that no contempt is ever justified. It is always bad for you and it will never change the opinion of another person. Four, go where people disagree with you and learn from them. Make new friends and seek out new opinions. And finally, practice warm-heartedness. This was advice that Brooks personally received from the Dalai Lama. Be kind, fair, and friendly to all, even those with whom we disagree. The remainder of the book further expounds upon many of the themes in the first chapter. In the second chapter, Brooks raises the question can you afford to be nice? In it, he tackles the myth that nice guys finish last. In romance and in business, studies noted by Brooks have shown that kindness, decency, and generosity go a long way on the path to success. When colleagues see a coworker as nice and civil, he writes, they will be more likely to seek that person out for advice and see that person as a leader. Nice people were also seen by their colleagues as more competent and they got better performance reviews from their supervisors. Indeed, the researchers found they performed better precisely because they were nice. Studies have also shown the same applies to leadership. Whether you are a politician, a CEO, or just an ordinary citizen intent on changing the country, you can afford to be nice. In fact, you can hardly afford not to be nice. But how? Brooks gives us two simple hacks. Hacks number one, fake it. As, as the saying goes, fake it till you make it. This is really based on a scientific understanding here. It's based on this theory of self-perception, the idea that acting as if one feels something will actually produce that feeling. He tells the story of James Laird, a psychologist at Clark University in Massachusetts, who conducted an experiment in 1974 on subjects who were induced to smile or frown while viewing certain pictures. He then had the subjects take a test to measure their mood and found out that those who were smiling were generally happier. Laird concluded, quote, manipulation of the expressive behavior of the face was sufficient to produce changes in reports of subjective experience of emotion. In layman's terms, smiling makes you feel better. So turn that frown upside down. <laughs> the second hack is to maintain an attitude of gratitude. A 2003 study found that people who kept a list of things for which they were grateful were significantly more satisfied with their lives. In other words, count your blessings. In the third chapter, Brooks gives us love lessons for leaders. 
He notes that there are two types of leaders. The first are coercive leaders. These are often perceived as bullying, divisive, polarizing leaders who are focused on short-term results. They often come in just to shake things up. They frequently manipulate others, creating conflict to pit people against each other and create in-groups and out-groups. For coercive leaders, power is the focus, obtaining and executing power at the expense of others. In commenting on our current political climate, Brooks observes, at present, the coercive leadership model appears to be proliferating in Washington, as both parties are paralyzed by division and contempt. It is also spread through the media, much of which specializes in caricatures of one side or the other. Divisive leaders on the left preach the politics of envy, while divisive leaders on the right promote the politics of exclusion. As mutual contempt rises, people increasingly refuse to work together. He concludes, the goal becomes not to help struggling Americans, but to destroy the other side. In contrast, Brooks identifies the second type of leader, what he calls authoritative leaders. They are not authoritarians, but rather visionaries who seek to lift others up, not push them down. They inspire people. They are not adverse to conflict, but they do so respectfully. And he cites Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. as the prime example of this type of leader. The challenge that Brooks lays out for us in this chapter is to be the kind of leader we want at home, at work, and in the community. In the fourth chapter, Brooks raises the difficult question, how can I love my enemies if they are immoral? Convinced of our own moral rectitude, and the corresponding turpitude of our opponents, he raises the question of how we can even engage with people we believe are immoral, much less love them. To answer this question, he directs us to the research of Dr. Jonathan Haidt and his moral foundations theory. Haidt identifies five innate moral values that exist within all cultures. Fairness, compassion, respect for authority, loyalty to one's group, and purity or sanctity. According to Haidt, fairness and compassion are nearly universal. And with regard to fairness, a distinction is made between two expressions. Redistributive fairness, which holds that it is fair to redistribute rewards proportional to human need. And meritocratic fairness, which holds that it is necessary to match reward to merit. We all believe in both. But liberals tend to favor redistributive fairness while conservatives favor a more meritocratic approach. The other moral values listed, three through five, are emphasized more strongly by conservatives and less so by liberals. It's again not to say that they don't emphasize them at all, it's just a matter of proportionality. According to Haidt, liberals have kind of a two-channel or two-foundation morality, while conservatives have more of a five-channel morality. So what are the lessons that Brooke would have us take away? First, focus your arguments on the moral values we share, fairness and compassion, rather than the other values. Second, be wary of manipulative leaders in politics and media who use these moral dimensions where we disagree as a wedge to drive us apart and fuel contempt. Third, we need to recognize that divergent moral views are not a bug in the human system. They are a feature that make us stronger. 
He encourages us to celebrate and embrace ideological diversity. We should constantly evaluate our moral reasoning. Is my way the right way? Is it the only way? In the fifth chapter, Brooks examines the power and peril of identity. He notes that demographic and experiential branding, identification by oneself or others with a certain group or stereotype has become extremely common. We are increasingly identifying and judging others on the basis of demographic identities. Or as a librarian might say, we tend to judge books by covers. In this chapter, Brooks examines the research done by Richard LaPierre of Stanford University in the early 1930s on discrimination against Chinese immigrants. The research showed that people are more hostile to others in the abstract than they are in person. It is much easier to dehumanize someone we don't personally know. But when we meet actual people and get to know them, we feel a human connection, and connection destroys discrimination. But Brooks also considers the insights of Robert Putnam, the Harvard political scientist and author of Bowling Alone, The Collapse and Revival of American Community. Putnam identifies two types of social identity, bonding identity, which describes how members of a group are alike but differ from others, and bridging identity, which looks for the common humanity and the experiences notwithstanding our differences. There is a danger, however, of what Brooks refers to as breaking identity. When people claim an identity for themselves in opposition to another group, and the other group is viewed as categorically evil. He describes this attitude as, I define myself by what I hate. It is important to distinguish how these identities operate. Specifically, he notes, breakers seek to gain power by driving people apart. They use the language of othering to exploit identity politics. And unfortunately, this is the dominant strain in national politics on both left and right. Bonders don't seek to profit from division, but they do tend to place more emphasis on their identity to form stronger links with their own group. And finally, bridgers are dedicated to diversity. They seek to bring people together. They are willing to engage constructively when ideological and philosophical differences exist. The key to bridging behavior is the sharing of stories, as Brooks explains in chapter six, tell me a story. As he notes, we all argue over facts. Facts are not effective or persuasive in resolving arguments because of what was called confirmation bias. We tend to believe evidence in support of our prior beliefs and reject evidence that contradict our beliefs. This has also been referred to as my side bias. If you're from my side, I'll listen to you. Brooks highlights extensive research that shows the power of stories in forming human connection. Stories bring people together, he writes. They possess the power to unite. He also examines the role of oxytocin, the hormone that makes us feel bonded to others. Oxytocin is released when we hear stories, particularly stories of others in distress. It tugs on our heartstrings. It fuels our empathy. Stories also humanize statistics. 
He observes when you are talking about people, 10 million is a statistic, one person is a story. And stories win when you are trying to get people to support a cause. Of course, the reverse can be true as well. Tyrants from Hitler to Pol Pot have sought to dehumanize others to destroy compassion and empathy by eliminating their stories. It was Stalin who once declared infamously, when one man dies, it's a tragedy. When thousands die, it's a statistic. The most significant example of de-individuation and dehumanization that occurs on a daily basis for many of us is on social media and the internet. Social media tends to strip away stories. It is a particular example of a mob mentality in 280 characters or less, at least on Twitter. According to a Canadian study in 2014, habitual internet commentary is strongly correlated with pathologies such as sadism, psychopathy, and Machiavellianism. So what would Brooks have us do in response? The solution is in claiming our stories. First, don't feed the trolls. Don't engage with anonymous posters such as Trump Lover 2016 or Bernie Bro 2020. These individuals, if they are indeed individuals and not bots, are not interested in a rational discussion of issues. You will not get anywhere with them. Second, he suggests to cut back on all social media. And I'll just share a personal anecdote with that. I got really involved in Twitter and realized just how much of a cesspool it had become. And I, I haven't deleted my account, but I've, I've basically signed off and logged off. And I'll check in every now and then, but I will not post, respond, like, or anything with, with Twitter. Finally, he tells us to tell our own story in 20 seconds or less. In the business world, this is often referred to as your elevator speech, the kind of speech that you would give someone in an elevator when they ask you, oh, what do you do? It's a short summary of kind of who you are, what you do, how can I help you? He challenges us to tell that story in 12 words or less. And he refers to the legend of Ernest Hemingway, who once made a bet that he could write an entire story in six words. The bet was accepted. Hemingway took out a piece of paper and wrote, for sale, baby shoes, never worn. <laughs> Given all that we've covered so far, it might appear that Brooks is arguing for an end to argumentation, but that would not be quite right. Instead, he is appealing for better argumentation. He explores this in detail in chapter seven, is competition our problem? Turning to the field of sports, Brooks notes several key aspects of healthy competition. First, it fosters and sustains excellence. Mutual excellence makes competition fierce, captivating, and even beautiful. Second, competition requires rules in order for the game to properly function. The rules provide structure and ensure fairness, a level playing field, as we say. Third, true competition requires voluntary cooperation with the rules. This entails respect for the game and for the opposing players. And finally, competition properly understood and practiced can actually unite people, not only fans, but opposing players for the love of the game. 
He maintains that these same four elements apply with regard to economic competition. Indeed, competition leads to a higher quality of life and lower prices for all. Because of the competition of free markets, the percentage of the world population living in starvation level poverty has dropped by more than four-fifths in the last 50 years. President Barack Obama, in a public conversation with Brooks in 2015 at Georgetown University, said, the free market is the greatest producer of wealth in history. It has lifted billions of people out of poverty. So if competition is such a positive force in sports and economics, what about in politics? He maintains that it is absolutely essential. He makes an earnest appeal for the competition of ideas, writing, we need Republicans and Democrats to argue fiercely over the best ways to combat poverty, reduce dependency, and give more Americans the opportunity to achieve the happiness of earned success. We need liberals and conservatives to fight vigorously over the best ways to protect our national security while also preserving individual liberties. We need the left and the right to debate energetically the best ways to improve education so that the next generation has the tools to pursue and achieve the American dream. We need a passionate competition of ideas so that each side refines its solutions, becomes more innovative, and therefore the best ideas rise to the top. Notice that this competition is about ideas, solutions, proposals. It is a competition in service of the American people, not at their expense. It is very different from the radical bickering that we see in Washington and in social media. Brooks gives us an example of this kind of competition of ideas, what it can look like in chapter 8. Please disagree with me. He tells us the story of two Princeton professors, Robbie George and Cornell West. Robbie is a devout Catholic, a leading conservative, a Republican, and white. Cornell is a noted progressive leader, the honorary chairman of the Democratic Socialists of America, the sworn enemy of profit-driven capitalism, and an African-American. They would agree on very little, and yet they both have a deep and abiding love and respect for each other, a strong sense of brotherhood that transcends their differences. In 2017, they wrote a joint statement on the importance of the freedom of expression and the freedom of thought, a freedom increasingly under attack on many college campuses. They wrote, none of us is infallible. Whether you are a person of the left, the right, or the center, there are reasonable people of goodwill who do not share your fundamental convictions. The more important the subject, the more willing we should be to listen and engage. Brooks then provides us with several rules of engagement. First, find your Robbie or Cornell, someone that disagrees with you but still loves you. If you cannot find someone like that, that's part of the problem. So you need to expand your circle of friends. Get to know people with different values in a deep way. And I'll have a suggestion at the end of our presentation on a way that we might be able to do that. Second, don't attack or insult. Don't even try to win. Instead, listen to understand. Third, never assume the motives of another person or their beliefs. Do not engage in ad hominem arguments. And finally, use your values as a gift, not as a weapon. 
For example, find common ground in patriotism and faith. Lastly, in his conclusion, Brooks gives us some advice. Some rules to subvert the culture of contempt. Stand up to the man. Refuse to be used by the powerful. Escape the bubble. Go where you're not invited and say things people don't expect. Say no to contempt. Treat others with love and respect even when it's difficult. Disagree better. Be part of a healthy competition of ideas. And finally, disconnect from unproductive debates. In closing, I found this to be a challenging but also a very refreshing approach to the problems of contempt in American life and politics. It is a well-researched book documented with footnotes, but it is not a dry academic study. He uses his own stories and humor to make his case. But where do we go from here? Might I suggest that the organization I represent, Better Angels, is one way to bridge the divide. Better Angels is a national citizens movement to reduce political polarization in the United States by bringing liberals and conservatives together to understand each other beyond stereotypes, to form red and blue community alliances, teaching practical skills for communicating across political differences, and making a strong case for depolarization. We unite red and blue Americans in a working alliance Instead of asking people to change their minds about key issues, we give all Americans a better chance to understand each other, to absorb the values and experiences that inform our political philosophies, and ultimately to recognize our common humanity. At each level of the organization, we seek to ensure equal representation of reds and blues. I am the Tennessee co-coordinator for reds, and my counterpart in Nashville is the co-coordinator for Blues. Right now, we are having our national convention this week in St. Louis with equal numbers of Reds and Blues in attendance. Our approach is guided by the Better Angels Pledge, which I've provided here. As individuals, we try to understand the other side's point of view, even if we don't disagree with it. In our communities, we engage those we disagree with, looking for common ground and ways to work together. And in politics, we support principles that bring us together rather than divide us. With that, I'd like to open the floor for comments or questions. Um, my question is about facts. In my experience, people tend, you know, when they're telling their story, they have their own perspective where they're coming from in their own experiences. If a particular person's experience doesn't match, you know, the statistics or the general situation, you know, perhaps for uh, discrimination or something like that, how do you engage with people if you don't agree on the facts? That's a good question. I think part of the answer lies in, in your question itself that we come to view these facts differently from our own personal perspective. So tell me more about your perspective. Tell me why you believe that rather than arguing against the facts that you've presented. Because those facts may be true, um, but they may be colored or may be interpreted by your perspective. 
So if you kind of understand that perspective, you might be able to help the other person understand, oh, well, I guess maybe I can see why I do think this way. But as he said, we're not often going to agree on the facts uh, of the matter, even though you would think we would. It's, you know, I, I come from an academic background in history. History, you would think, is just names, dates, places, events, straightforward, what have you. History is very much an art of interpretation. You can't just boil things down to those raw facts of data. I don't know if that answers your question, but I think the first step is to understand where people are coming from, why they feel the way they do, why they're interpreting those facts the way they are. Your organization is like working its way from the bottom up. It's how people can communicate better. But a lot of what I've identified in the polarization of America are opinions based on lies that are being told to them by politicians in the interest of maintaining power and getting reelected. It has nothing to do with truth. It has everything to do with maintaining power and how they've identified to do that, similar to concepts that Hitler used in rising to power in Nazi Germany. So if you're working with the mass, you know, and I like that idea of grassroots, but ha it doesn't affect rallies where lies are told. It doesn't affect premises that politicians use to get reelected because truth is irrelevant in today's society. I can only address how I've come to wrestle with that. I, as I said, I identify as red, as a conservative. I have very many friends who are very strong, family members especially, who it's almost impossible for them to have a conversation with someone who is a Democrat or a blue. But I'm aware that there are good people of both sides of different persuasions here with different ideas. And one of the beauties of the process that I've gone through with Better Angels is that it's not a confrontational approach. It's a learning to listen to each other approach. And so I'm able then to go back to my family or to my friends and say, no, that's not quite right. That's not what they're saying. That's not what they believe. And hopefully can change one person's attitude, one person's opinion at a time. Now, granted, yeah, I agree with you. You know, we, we have politicians media. There's a whole industrial complex, as he pointed out, fueling this divide. We can't control that, but we can control our response to that, and we can make a difference one person at a time, one community at a time. That's our vision, and that's what we're working toward. I might just add one more thing about Better Angels. After people go through a moderated uh, workshop, half Republicans, half Democrats, then those who choose to can form an alliance, a Better Angels Alliance that meets. And what is being proposed now, and I'm going to the convention tomorrow in St. Louis, but if that passes, there will be plans for those alliances to work at influencing the process in politics and uh, they won't be working on issues, but they will be working to make the process more effective. That just... Very good, thank you, yes. I spend about half my life in uh, the state of Maine, 
There's a similar organization to Better Angels that is operating in the state of Maine. The goals are quite similar. It's an organization that's led by a very, a very good moderator who goes around to the various parts of the state, very deliberately bringing together the broadest spectrum of the communities with the idea of exploring different questions. For example, I think the last time the question that was explored was, what is the role of the federal government? but to bring about discussion in which people are civil, respectful, and listen and learn from each other. Um, it's also a very good model. Yeah, very, very good. It's, it's, it sounds reminiscent of the town hall meeting in, in New England. And I would also point out that Better Angels is only one organization that's out there. And there's a, there is a growing movement across the country, and we are in partnership with many of these other movements. So... That's a sign of hope for me. So the reason I got involved in this organization, uh, I heard Jonathan Haidt talking about polarization on one of the news networks. He, he referenced this organization, so I just had my laptop out and Googled it right away and went to a workshop in Nashville. And, um, you know, so whether it's Better Angels or whether it's some other community organization like the one you're, you're referencing, I just encourage people to get involved. If you care about this, you want to see change in our country, get involved. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to and sharing the Knox County Public Library podcast. Find other episodes and life-changing resources at knoxlib.org.